Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, mail-in voting and how it's being covered in the press. So one of the extraordinary things, among many extraordinary things, about this election in 2020 is that the president and his party have made it their business to raise real questions about the integrity of the voting process and mail-in voting in particular. Um, This has become a talking point and it's become a theme of the president's campaign, as we saw this week in the presidential debate between Trump and Joe Biden, in which Trump talked extensively about it. Take a look at what happened in New Jersey. Take a look at what happened in Virginia and other places. They're not losing 2%, 1%, which, by the way, is too much. An election could be won or lost with that. They're losing 30 and 40%. This is going to be a fraud like you've never seen. The other thing, President Trump, it's a rigged election. So the question now is, how is this being covered in the press? What is the root of this conversation? Did it begin with Trump? Did it begin with Russian disinformation efforts? Did it begin on social media? Um, And it turns out the answer to some of those questions is surprising. I'm thrilled to have join me, uh, Yokai Binkler, a professor at Harvard Law School, who has studied uh, the movement of information around media and around social media, and who wrote a terrific piece for CJR a couple of years ago about how the right-wing press operates and how it operates in sort of a hive. He's now out with a new piece at CJR looking specifically at mail-in voting and misinformation around mail-in voting. Okay, welcome. Great to be with you, Kyle. Uh, Happy to get a chance to talk again. Uh, even if the uh, uh, circumstances uh, aren't quite as pleasant. So tell us what what you set out to understand when looking at mail-in voting and misinformation and and how and the role of media, both <coughs> mainstream media and social media in sort of uh, propagating this information. So one thing that's become very clear in this election is that what people believe about mail-in voting and whether it is or isn't uh, susceptible to fraud is going to have a big impact on who does or doesn't vote by mail to begin with, who participates um, uh, in the middle of a pandemic, and uh, the legitimacy. And we see this with the president questioning the legitimacy. So we try to understand where did this concern about mail-in voting emerge? Is it an example of the kind of social media disinformation campaign that uh, we read so much about in so much press coverage? Uh, or is it not? And, and what can we learn from this enormously, enormously successful disinformation campaign that's persuaded about half of Republicans that uh, voter fraud is a major problem with mail-in voting, where did it come from? And then what can we learn more generally about election disinformation from what we find? And what did you find? Well, we looked, what we did, we have this system that allows us to to capture a lot of data online. And we looked at uh, 55,000 online stories from March to August. We looked at 70,000. 75,000 Facebook posts uh, with millions of engagements. We looked at 5 million tweets and we tried to line them up and say, okay, where where does attention to this frame spike? 
What are the stories that capture the imagination? Is there a big difference? Does Facebook disinformation proceed and then media follow? Does media proceed or not? And what we found uh, remarkably is how utterly central Trump himself is to this process and how much his role is woven in with the uh, uh, Republican Party, with the RNC itself, with various state officials, with his uh, press staff, both in the campaign and the White House. It's not a crazy individual tweeting in the middle of the night kind of image of Trump, but rather much more uh, leading actor, leading what is effectively a party driven disinformation campaign that is enormously successful in that it really has changed the, the perceptions, or at least it, it has um, 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 correlated with perceptions among Republicans being accepting very widely that uh, voting by mail is associated with mass level fraud. So we'll talk in a second about what happens once what what the media does with that information that Trump puts out and how it spreads it but did you endeavor to understand what the root of Trump's suspicion is i mean cuz there has been this perception that basically what the president does is he sits in his bed and watches fox and then retweets whatever's on fox um that's a very obviously an oversimplification but but what you're saying is that that this originated with Trump and and the Republican establishment and then was spread. Do you know how Trump latched on to this idea or where what what the source for him was? So that's actually very interesting because we really tried to dig in. Uh, every time he came out with one of these statements that really peaked, we looked very closely at the TV uh, uh, broadcasting on on Fox and Friends and 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 in other places just before, and once or twice it looks like within a few hours it might be the driver. But overwhelmingly, what you're seeing is um, he shows up on a TV interview um, uh, with Maria Bartiromo with Fox and Friends, uh, and he makes this statement, or he stands up at the Daily. Uh, press briefing on COVID, and he makes this uh, statement. And that's when the coverage kicks in. So so one thing that's quite clear, at least, least on this really important topic, this is not about him getting fed by Fox News and then saying the things. This is very much him leveraging his influence over Fox and over the right-wing media ecosystem to set the agenda. Uh, but in that regard, it's not even clear that the most important dissemination mechanism is Fox News because he gets caught up by everyone. Now, as to why, he was very clear about it uh, from the very beginning. So the, the first instance is really his response to the Democrats in the House and Nancy Pelosi trying to push um, uh, support for mail-in ballots into the first coronavirus stimulus bill. There's almost no reference to mail-in voter fraud 
before March 30th when he signs the bill after pushing back on, on a $3.5 billion uh, package to support mail-in voting, giving the Democrats only a very small portion. And then he goes on Fox and Friends and, and brags about it and says, if we get the kind of mail-in voter uh, uh, they want, uh, a Republican will never get elected again. He says mm -hmm. it again in a tweet a couple of days later. For some reason, it doesn't work well for Republicans. So he has an image in his mind that we know is actually shared quite broadly among uh, uh, Republican strategists, that if you expand ballot access, it's bad for Republicans. Mm -hmm. And the drive, there are a couple of, of, of opinion pieces uh, uh, in the Post, in the Times, um, um, uh, the, the week before that say, Mail-in voting during the pandemic is going to be the big way in which Democrats at long last get ballot access. That's in the three, four days before his appearance. So it becomes very clear in the debates over the first stimulus relief bill that uh, there are people on the Democratic side who think that this is going to increase ballot access and that's going to help Democrats. He understands and expresses explicitly that this is about partisan advantage and whether Republicans can or can't get elected. And then he harnesses himself to this um, uh, almost weekly and by August almost daily disinformation campaign uh, of, of making sure that uh, Republicans reject it and confusing everybody else except for committed Democrats that it's a real problem, that it shouldn't be used, that it shouldn't be expanded, and more, most importantly, perhaps, that its results shouldn't be trusted. So I understand, um, you know, how his tweets would be picked up by the RNC and would be picked up by uh, elected officials and other party people, and even by Fox and Fox and Friends. But what is the role of non-Fox media in amplifying what he's saying. So this is, in some sense, the most surprising thing that came out of our study is, I guess it's surprising in advance, given how much we focus on one hand on Fox News and on the other on social media. But once you say it, it really shouldn't be that surprising. Um, there's an enormous number of people in the country, we know from surveys, not from our work, uh, who aren't that attuned to politics, who get their news from uh, the broadcast networks, from local TV. Uh, they're not that attuned all the time to news. They're getting it more or less from the air. But what happens is when Trump speaks, he speaks as president. So what he's done is he's become a master at using that position to summon coverage across the media ecosystem, not from the top only, but everybody who syndicates AP stories, everybody who's doing news for the, the TV networks. The president said it, it's news. The president said it in all caps in an outrageous way that uh, really breaks with norms. That becomes um, a, a, a TV event, essentially. And so we see his tweets showing up on the screen of cable news 
uh, uh, we see it in spikes of, uh, of AP syndication. Lots of times when we see a spike in stories, and this is what really drew us to try to do more detailed analysis of the way in which syndication work, which we did using text analysis on a very large number of stories, um, is that often you suddenly see a spike in stories and what they are, it's the same AP story or in some cases, it's the same USA Today story that's replicated on, on, on the USA Today network um, uh, of, of sites. Um, but in each of these cases, what we have is a classic professional journalistic set of decisions by editors. The president said it. We're focused on what the president says. It's always news. The president said something outrageous, so it can create a really good headline. He he blocked. He said he's going to block um, um, funding to to Michigan and Nevada. He said he's going to delay the election. He said he's not going to accept the election. These are all made-for-headline kind of statements, and traditional major media outlets and professional journalism, in some sense, can't help themselves because it it forces itself into the headline, and he knows it. And this acting seems to be, at least from the cadence and the way in which it's done, it seems to be designed to do exactly that. He knows how to force the media to follow his agenda. And then he relies on the fact that professional journalists will avoid taking a partisan side by being balanced or neutral. So particularly early on, April, May, June, we see a lot of these uh, AP stories that have a, that, that adopt his framing, that there's a partisan disagreement. Democrats want it, Republicans not, don't. Not, there's a public health question of how you get safe voting to millions of people without disenfranchising people. And on the other hand, there's a disinformation campaign, which is what in fact is happening now. Instead, you get these stories. And some outlets, particularly later on in August, have gotten much, much better at stopping back and saying, it's not a matter of, of there are two partisan positions. Mm -hmm. There's a public health answer and there's a, a, a and, and democracy answer and there's a partisan answer. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is one of the most interesting mechanisms when you think of how many people don't get their news from Fox News, many more than those who do. And yet he succeeds in using his norm breaking not only on Twitter, we always talk about Twitter, but we see again and again in the daily press briefing, in TV interviews, in, in later on in campaign appearances, uh, he forces media outlets, mainstream media outlets, major media outlets to cover him. And he leverages the emphasis on balance to make sure that they push his agenda through, whether or not they agree with it. Uh, and that's a lesson that I think needs to be learned. And, and in some sense, the most important conclusion I draw from what we saw is that it's those editors and journalists, people working on the local TVs and the local and regional um, uh, outlets, the people working at the AP producing the syndicated stories, they have to educate their publics uh, about the reality of the matter, the public health aspects, the democratic aspects, and the fact that, that the statements by the president are part of a sustained disinformation campaign. 
you know, you 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 and your team did such a good job of documenting this in this case, but there is something incredibly maddening about this because this has been happening again and again and again for the last four years, where he will say something completely false. It'll be amplified, as you say, throughout all this ecosystem. And there'll be this like, well, some people say this, some people say that. And and there's no there's no lessons learned after each episode. Do you know what I mean? And it's a media, it's a media failure, I think. I mean, you would think that this far into his administration, there would be a kind of a norm about how press deals with false statements from him. But there isn't. And why do you think that is? I think it's very, very hard for people raised in norms of objectivity and neutrality, as professional journalists are, to adapt to a propaganda-rich environment. Um, it really requires a different stance, a much more oppositional stance. Uh, I think we've seen, uh, I mean, all the attacks on, on the so-called fake news media uh, uh, make it very difficult. You become a target. You appear partisan. Uh, it doesn't fit your own sense of professional uh, um, uh, self-perception. So you really do have to accept. And, and for this, you actually have to accept that it's not just Trump. It's the Republican Party as a party, because otherwise what ends up happening is you you say something Trump, and then you balance it with with Democrats somehow in order to find some form of a balance. I just think there's such a profound disconnect between what traditional norms of of balance and neutrality um, uh, do in the context of a disinformation campaign. Now mm. again, it's not just in electoral politics. We have the classic case that everybody knows about the way in which climate change was covered until mm -hmm. well into the middle of the 2000s, until you had a series of academic studies showing how completely incorrectly the press had, had described climate change mm -hmm. because of this effort, not just to be objective, but to perform. It's almost like you put on a show of, new, of, of objectivity by showing that you're equally tough on both sides. We saw it in 2016. I don't know if you remember in the piece that we did uh, for CJR uh, uh, um, about the 2016 election. One of the most remarkable images was the ways in which we showed how much mainstream major media outlet coverage of Clinton was all scandals all the time. Mm -hmm. Whereas for Trump, it was all issues all the time. Because of the effort to dig something negative, equally negative to say about Clinton so that they wouldn't appear biased. Mm -hmm. And we see this on the on the voter disinformation now as well. So I think it's something it requires a, a, a deep soul searching within the journalism profession of how you do your work, not in a well-functioning democracy, but in a democracy that is under attack from one of its two major parties. It's, mm -hmm. I think it's a genuinely difficult thing to do. Mm -hmm. So we're recording this on Friday morning um, and we have woken up to this 
extraordinary news that um, both Trump and his wife um, have tested positive for COVID. And there's all now kinds of speculation about who else has it and what this means for the White House and what this means for politics. But what does it mean for, and I know that you don't want to sort of speculate because we don't, we know nothing about how sick he is, how sick he's going to get, what the course of his illness is going to be. We have read this morning that he's not asymptomatic, that he does have some symptoms, mild um, symptoms so far. But what does it mean in terms of this question of the legitimacy of the election, the legitimacy of certainly of mail-in voting in terms of what is it going to mean, do, do you think, in terms of how it fits into this overall push from Trump and the Republicans to question the validity of the election? So a little bit here, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm shifting into speculation. Um, I think the Republicans may well face a massive loss, uh, particularly if this means that in the next month, Trump can't be out there rallying the troops, if there's a good deal of uncertainty, um, if it uh, increases the rates of, of anxiety among Republicans, just because they have this vivid example about exposing yourself and it changes uh, access to, to uh, people uh, participating in in-person voting, but they're now afraid of mail-in ballots. Very hard to tell. I think it's going to make the... If, if Biden wins dramatically, I think it's going to offer the Trump wing of the Republican Party a uh, an explanation so that in the internal civil war in the Republican Party between the the party of Reagan and Bush and the party of Trump, which is really what happened in 2016 when, when Trump won. I think it's going to make it harder for the Bush-Reagan wing of the party to say, look, you drove us into a ditch because mm -hmm. there's going to be this, this exogenous thing. So we're going to see that battle within the Republican Party uh, fought out, I think, much longer, even if Trump loses. Um, it's, um, uh, I, I can't imagine, they've got so much invested now in uh, denying the pandemic and, and denying the importance of the pandemic and trying to prop up the market with stories that it's not that big of a deal in, 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 in um, delegitimating mail-in voting, um, in connecting it to, I mean, we see in the report itself, not in the piece I did uh, for CJR, uh, you really see in some of the TV images how racialized the anxiety over the postal service and the mail is in mm -hmm. some of these TV images. Mm -hmm. I think that's too embedded for them to suddenly turn around and say, yes, everybody should vote by mail. I don't think that's going to change. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's going to be very salient. We see, when we look throughout the report, we see that one of the critical tactics, uh, strategy, I'd say, actually, of the Republican propaganda campaign around mail-in voting is taking vivid anecdotes, a West Virginia mail carrier, um, a, a dog, a, a, a ballot request comes into a home with the name of a dead dog on it. These become the pieces of evidence. So there's a very strong method of using anecdotes 
to stand for the whole. Mm -hmm. And that's very powerful relative to statistics in that way. So suddenly you have the ultimate anecdote, as it were, the ultimate visible uh, uh, image flipping, flipping on COVID and how important it is, flipping on in-person uh, campaigning, flipping on masks. Uh, I think that's that's that shakes a lot. And, and there's no question that an audience so attuned over time to taking individual vivid anecdotes and turning them into the, a symbol for the whole uh, is going to have some some serious thinking to do when they when they look at the president uh, uh, ill if he shows up visibly ill. Mm. Uh, okay, it's so good to talk to you. Great to talk to you too. You can read his piece, which is based on this extraordinary, deep research dive from Yokai and his team on CJR today, and then follow our ongoing coverage of the fallout from today's news about Trump and coronavirus at CGR.org and through our daily email newsletter, The Media Today. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.